the number of organizations I have worked with. And they'll say things like, oh, we do a multicultural luncheon. Because that's really having an impact. <laughs> There's no plan. They don't know what the problems are. They've never done an assessment. They never asked questions. I think one of the biggest things we've seen out of the Black Lives Matter movement is a lot of listening sessions where people of color, particularly Black and Indigenous people, are having the opportunity to share their lived experience and executives are sitting there listening and hearing things that they've never heard before. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. To say it's been a tough few months for folks in the U.S. is a bit of an understatement, I think. Obviously, everyone around the world is navigating the volatility of COVID-19. Businesses have been impacted. Families have been impacted. Individuals. But... Starting in May, we've been navigating a crucial moment for social justice, or should I say social injustice. Following the murder of George Floyd, we at the individual level and organizational level have had to have some tough conversations, not just around our mindsets and our relationships, but also the way we do business, the way we build and nurture our communities. And it's a very complex and at times daunting conversation. But I've had the pleasure to speak with a lot of folks, not just addressing new DNI imperatives. And when I say new, I mean new conversations because diversity and inclusion or DNI has always been important. But now more than ever, it is crucial. These are tough conversations, but I've had the pleasure recently to sit down with Michael Bach, who is an author of Birds of All Feathers, a new book that really breaks down the imperatives of successful DNI in organizations, ways businesses can develop their strategies, hold executive leadership and even individual employees accountable. And we dig into a lot of the nuances, the complexities, and the challenges that emerge for organizations as they have been and continue to develop their approach and maintain their approach to create a better environment for people of color and other other individuals. So if anything, I hope that this conversation, not just inspires you, but allows you to reflect, ask yourself some tough questions, and most of all, motivates you to continue having tough conversations within your organization and finding the best path forward for your organization. Michael, so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we have a lot to dig into during our time together, but let's start high level. I always like folks to share a little bit about their roles and their experiences. So let's start there. Why don't you share a little bit about your work that you do as CEO of the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion? 
Sure. So the center is a national educational charity with the mandate of educating Canadians on the value of diversity and inclusion. That is lovely marketing speak. We spend most of our time working with employers on how to create inclusive workplaces. And we do that through offering educational opportunities. Mostly they would be, well, now they're entirely virtual, but we used to deliver them in person, but a lot of online and in-person events across the country, really to help employers understand what they can do to make their workplaces more inclusive. Excellent. And you founded the center back in 2012, but before that, you had a pretty significant tenure at KPMG. So I have to ask, how did your experience there inspire you to begin this new venture? Because usually there's a bit of a backstory there, either your past experiences or even challenges. How did that lead to your work? Yeah, there is a bit of a backstory. So I started at KPMG in 2005, specifically in the IT consulting department on the consulting side. And that's my background is in the IT space. And long story short, I had the opportunity to write the business case for the creation of a role in diversity at KPMG. And they foolishly gave me the job. And subsequently, it was a role that I did for seven years. And I was also the deputy chief diversity officer for the firm globally for two and a half years. But it was in that time in my global role that I was able to sort of step back and look at Canada at a very 30,000 foot view. And I realized that there was a real gap in the diversity and inclusion space in Canada, that as employers, this is a challenging conversation to wrap your arms around. Consider that Canada is the second largest geographic landmass in the world. We are only uh, behind Russia. And we have a very small population in comparison to the United States. We have 36 million people spread out over so much land. So as an employer to sort of figure out, okay, we have operations in every province and territory, and where do we go? How do we figure this out? So I started sort of scribbling on the backs of napkins as I was in airports and figuring out what it would look like to have a nonprofit that sole purpose was to help employers focus on diversity and inclusion. And after that, I started talking with some of my peers at different organizations. And before I knew it, people were writing us checks and we had to start the actual organization and do the work. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously, like you said, a very challenging and even daunting topic to not just wrap your arms around, but really address head on and drive actual change within a business. And I could imagine the bigger the business is, the more challenging it is. So I'd love to kind of dig into that juxtaposition between importance of DNI versus action, because I feel like it's always been an important topic for executive teams and boards. Not always. I mean, I guess maybe probably over the past five years, it's really risen in importance from a topical standpoint. But never been significant progress. So I would love your take on what has stalled momentum for so long. And we'll get into what's happening now, but I mean, historically, what has really prevented progress? Yeah, I think there's a few things that have held us back. One is unconscious bias. So leadership within organizations made up predominantly of straight, white, able-bodied men not having an awareness for their own biases, not having an awareness that bias exists, 
what it is, how it's impacting the, their decision-making. So they don't realize that they have a bias against people of color, against indigenous people, against women. And so they're not paying special attention to make sure that those people are getting the opportunities they need to progress in their career. That's one. Two is further going on that is a lack of education where people don't necessarily understand what we're actually talking about. And I was thinking about this this morning, that the state of things in the United States can largely be blamed on the civil rights movement. And I realize that may be a bit controversial, so allow me to explain. I think that the Civil Rights Act, affirmative action, all the legislation under the EEOC has been poorly rolled out. And it has come across as a movement to give advantage to specific groups, namely women, people of color, Native Americans, et cetera, people with disabilities, veterans. And straight, white, able-bodied men have been standing there thinking, well, what about me? Don't I deserve special opportunity? What they don't understand is we're not talking about special opportunity. We're talking about the same opportunity. We're talking about equal opportunity. And it's that lack of education that has led to people seeing this as a bad thing. I would say those two things have been critical in holding us back. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I think it really aligns with a lot of the conversations that are happening now. So that mindset is still very much present, I think, not just in the executive suite, right, just among everyday people, even at the employee level, I feel like there's still that disconnect. But I have to ask, you know, just given where we're at now, everything that's happening, the aftershocks of all of these cases of clear racial injustice and how that's kind of driving urgency, you know, at the individual level, at the social media level. When we are seeing some organizations really make more tangible DNI commitments, they're really putting things not just on paper, but are implementing these commitments. Since you kind of track and live and breathe this every day, I would love your take on if you're seeing a shift at all in, I guess, not just urgency, because that was my initial question, but also maybe a shift in mindset like that you were just talking about. So that disconnect in what about me? Is that changing at all? Yeah, to some extent. I would say George Floyd's death was a spark that lit a flame. And to be very clear, the murder of George Floyd on May 25th was not the first African-American killed at the hands of oppression. It was just the first one that was caught on film. And that eight minutes and 46 seconds was so horrifying to watch. And I still can see that moment myself that particularly white people can no longer stand by and say, well, that doesn't really happen because they saw it happen. So people like Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey and a very long list of people of color who have experienced discrimination, not just at the hands of police, but in general, is long. So this isn't new. What's new is that we've got some employers that have really committed and made significant commitments to doing this work. They may not have it right. They may not know exactly what this looks like, but they're actually committing to it. 
We have seen some employers who are making lovely statements that sound very good in sound bites, but where's the action? I think that's ultimately where we're going to find ourselves with this shift where some employers have been putting in the effort. And in five, 10 years, they're going to be incredibly successful. And then some employers who are doing little to nothing, but making statements, will find themselves struggling to find talent, will find themselves lacking customers. And I think it really is going to be a big dividing line right along the lines of diversity and inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point about George Floyd, I agree. I think this world that we're living in now that everything is shared instantly, everything is video, everything's graphical, right? It's so in your face and it really stays with you, right? So I think that definitely it's like a trickle down effect. And I think really drilling into your point around, you know, people can easily spot what's just window dressing or what's just a PR statement to say you're supporting something and then not actually doing anything. So I think really the onus is on the companies, on executive leadership, on boards to really put something into practice because it's not just employees watching, right? It's everyone watching right now. Yeah, exactly. The world is watching right now. And people want to see concrete action, particularly the people who have been marginalized for most, if not their entire life. They want to see that concrete action. I'll give you an example of something. And I don't know if I have permission to say the organization's name, so I'm just not going to talk about that. Large fashion retailer, global brand. They have about 250 stores in North America. They have bought my book and are having all of their store managers read it and participate in a learning program on the book. And my book isn't going to save the world. That would be completely uh, Pollyanna of me to think. But what it is going to do is start a conversation and give them a basis of knowledge to move forward. And it's that kind of concrete action that people want to see to get things going. Yeah. So that kind of leads me to your objectives for the book, Birds of All Feathers, which was a fascinating read. So many layers to it. And what I really liked about it is that it was actionable, meaning it wasn't just explaining the why you need to do this, but here's a concrete framework, a series of steps that you not just should follow, but can follow. You can actually put this into place now. So was that really the guiding light or North Star, so to speak, for writing this book? Or what really guided your process? Yeah, absolutely was. So working in in DNI for 15 years, I've read a whole lot of books and some of them come across as very academic and use examples that while very interesting in theory would not work in practice. And then others are written by consultants who just want to sell their services. And so they're not action oriented. And I wrote a book that I really wanted to be a bit of a how to, I wanted so many different audiences to get something out of this. And I just wanted them to pick it up and particularly like an entrepreneur, small business can pick it up and go, right, I need to figure out this DNI thing. Here's your roadmap. You don't need to hire a really expensive consultant. You don't need to hire me. Read this book and you actually be able to do this work yourself. 
Yeah, I love that. So, okay, you kind of touched on my next question, which was around the target audience for this, because I feel like there is this misunderstanding or misinterpretation that diversity and inclusion is largely like an HR premise. It's something that HR handles. And then that goes into like learning and development teams. So this is something everyone from like a small business owner all the way to like a board can and should read because it kind of democratizes this concept? Or do you find that the target audience kind of leans in one certain direction? No. And in fact, I I have been long quoted that diversity and inclusion that lives in HR dies in HR. Um, it's not an HR program. There's so much more to DNI. And so when I was thinking about who was reading the book, I was imagining the entrepreneur, the small business owner, the middle manager, the executive, the board, anybody will get something out of this book. Yes, HR practitioners should read the book. Absolutely. Because I think a lot of HR practitioners do not actually understand the depth and breadth of the topic. But I also think CEOs and boards of directors and anybody with a managing people responsibility should read this book. I really wanted to have as broad a reach as possible. So the book doesn't have an entirely HR focus. It has a business focus. And when I say business, I'm talking any employer, nonprofit, for-profits, large, small, regional, global, they all function the same, money in, money out. And this book is targeted towards any of them. Well, and I think it's especially important too to extend this conversation to more people within an organization because you kind of acknowledge this in the book that diversity and inclusion have kind of become buzzwords. I think because of that lack of action and that that disconnect between okay, we need to do this and let's just check the box and like there's no clear follow through, there's no accountability there. So I'm curious on your thoughts around the common disconnects or maybe even misconceptions around DNI as the new quote unquote must have for executives versus what it actually means in application. And you get into this a little bit in the book, but just for the folks listening. Yeah. Traditionally, when we hear the word diversity, we think women, we think people of color, people with disabilities, and generally speaking, people with visible disabilities. So people who use wheelchairs, people who are visually impaired or hearing impaired. We think about veterans, we think about Native Americans, LGBTQ2 plus peoples, but what we're really talking about when we talk about diversity is everything that makes a person unique. Look at parents as an example, and I'm just talking about biological heterosexual parents. It takes two to tango, but we tend to see women take on much more of the responsibility around child rearing. And they're the ones that take time off work. But men are involved in making the baby. So why are they not more involved in raising the baby? And what we see is that fathers are afraid to ask for time off. They're afraid to take any sort of parental leave that is available. They want to have a relationship with their child, but the employer only thinks of the child as a woman's responsibility. Diversity is about everything that makes a person unique, and inclusion is about creating spaces 
where people can come to work and do their job and be successful and feel like they belong and that they don't have to leave anything at the door. Again, I'm not trying to take away from the uniqueness of certain circumstances. Look at the treatment of people of color, particularly African-Americans. That's a whole special flavor of racism. But it is to say, and this is sort of our mantra, and I should point out to your listeners that I am a white man. I'm gay and I live with a disability, but I'm still a white man. My mantra in life is to help make sure that people who look like me understand what we're talking about and make sure that they are giving space to people who don't look like me. I love that so much. And I think one of the most eye-opening parts of this book is when you break down privilege. And this is something that you kind of made reference to earlier on in our conversation. And you go a layer deeper, you pose some questions for the reader to answer, to kind of determine like, oh, yes, (laughs) I do actually, in fact, have privilege. And I think that's the biggest part of the iceberg, so to speak, for people to crack and kind of unlearn and say, okay, this is something that exists. And how can I do my part or set a course forward. So is this lack of acknowledgement kind of what's holding up most executives? Like looking at this from the executive perspective that may be responsible for implementing some sort of DNI initiative or answering to not just employees, but consumers and stakeholders around where their positioning is. Do you think that this is kind of the first step or foundation of really making tangible progress? For your business? 100%. 100%. Absolutely. If you can't acknowledge your privilege, if you don't understand it exists, then we're already in a bad place. And to be clear, there are lots of different types of privilege. So I mentioned a couple. I'm a white man. I have white privilege and male privilege. What does that mean? That means that I've never been stopped by a police officer because they thought I couldn't afford the car I was driving. I have never been followed around a store because they thought I was going to steal something. I have never been assumed to be the secretary. Like I go into a meeting and no one's ever said, hey, hun, can you get me a cup of coffee? That's a privilege. Privilege is also things like, do you have post-secondary education? Do you have running water? Do you have high-speed internet? A lot of people have privilege in some way, shape, or form. We tend to talk about the white male privilege the most. And I think that may be because we don't necessarily, as white men, we don't necessarily understand our privilege. I have a very dear friend of mine who is Black, and she rides the subway every day. And every day, someone tries to touch her hair without asking. Complete strangers trying to touch your hair. And I use that as an example when I'm talking to particularly white men and the look on their face of, I cannot believe that happens. But if you have a conversation with a black woman, I have never met a black woman who wouldn't say, yes, that's happened to me. We need to acknowledge our privilege and then we need to figure out what we're doing with it. Because privilege is one of those things that you can't give away. You can't, first of all, you can't get it. You can't buy it. You can't have it assigned to you. It just is. And you can't get rid of it. 
You can't say, okay, I'm no longer going to have white privilege because you're still going to be white. So we have to acknowledge it and then use it to the advantage of others. Use our privilege to create space where women and people of color and people with disabilities and so on are able to have the same access to success as we have had. Yeah, those are some great points. I mean, even myself as a white woman, like sure, there are inequalities that still exist at the family care level, at the opportunities level, but there are still like everyday privileges that I have just because of the color of my skin. And I think realizing that despite the other inequalities I may face in my day to day is still very important. It allows us to open our minds up and understand the broader context of everything that's going on now. So I think you've raised some fantastic points. And I think this really gets to the heart of, I guess, a really important part that I want to make sure is discussed today. And that's intent and impact of initiatives. So you note that there's a right way and wrong way to do diversity in business. And again, people and business leaders may have the best of intentions. Maybe their efforts fall flat. Maybe they come up as tone deaf or performative. Are there any red flags or I guess points to check off that you would note in drawing that distinction between the right way and the wrong way? I mean, you don't have to get into it all, but maybe just some key things. The biggest thing, Alicia, I would say is not having a plan. The number of organizations I have worked with, and they'll say things like, oh, we do a multicultural luncheon, because that's really having an impact. (laughs) There's no plan. They don't know what the problems are. They've never done an assessment. They've never asked questions. I think one of the biggest things we've seen out of the Black Lives Matter movement is a lot of listening sessions where people of color, particularly Black and Indigenous people, are having the opportunity to share their lived experience and executives are sitting there listening and hearing things that they've never heard before. They've never asked those questions before. And if there's no plan, how are you actually doing anything? There needs to be a plan. And it's the biggest red flag for me is where's the strategy? Where's the assessment and where's the strategy? And if you don't have those two things, you don't know what you're actually trying to do. Yeah, I love that. So let's get into some actionable steps or even some best practices. Again, your book is fantastic because everything seems very approachable and achievable, which I think is needed in these times. So why don't you share a little bit of insight into that? I guess you would call it a foundational framework for, I guess, the guidelines for success, right? I mean, can you share what those are and why you think they're important as business leaders start to set their plan and I guess their evergreen plan moving forward? I mean, what are the foundational elements needed for success? Yeah, so I have a six-step process. And it's simplistic, I think, but really it's important to make sure you are pointing the ship in the right direction. So first is your business case. That answers the why. Why does it matter? Why should you be doing this? And I can come up with the business case for any organization within minutes. I've been doing this a long time. There is a business case for diversity and inclusion in any organization regardless of who they are, what they do. 
So first you need to answer that why question because there's going to be a whole lot of people asking why. So first your business case. Then you need to do an assessment. You need to understand what is your current state around diversity and inclusion. Who are your people? What is your demographic makeup? And then how do different groups feel about their experiences in the organization? And there's lots of different methodologies around conducting an assessment like this, but you need to conduct some form of assessment because otherwise you may be a solution looking for a problem. So once you've done your assessments, you write your strategy. Now you know what your problems are. What are the solutions? What are the tactics that you're going to execute on in order to fix the problems? Then you execute. So you take your strategy, you make it real, and then you measure. How do you know if you've been successful, if you don't measure? And then you rinse and repeat. And it's not a linear process. It's not even circular. You kind of go back and forth between steps because the reality is that things around this conversation change pretty dramatically. Let's face it, until May 25th, conversation around race and racism were not things we were really taking seriously. So things change and you need to be nimble and adaptable to those things. You go back and forth between the steps to make sure that you are continuing to address problems. If new problems come up, how are you going to address those? How are you going to measure the success? So you move back and forth between steps, but largely that is the plan. Fantastic. And again, your, your book really drills down into all of this. So definitely encourage everyone to get a copy and really dig into this. But speaking of problems, I know we're almost at the top of our time together, but I wanted to bring up this notion of the pipeline being a problem, because there have been a lot of debates around this, especially now that the pressure is mounting among executive leaders and boards. And they're saying, hey, it's not our fault. We have a pipeline problem. We, we don't we don't have people of color submitting their resumes or applying for these jobs. So what else can we do? I guess question one is, do you think that this pipeline problem is real? And does it kind of start at the top? And, and question two is, if it does exist, how do we fix that? Like, how do we communicate to people of color that these opportunities do exist? And how do we make it so the pipeline gets filled? I mean, I guess is what it comes down to. And so I guess it's kind of a two-parter for you. Mm-hmm. So normally I would refer to the questions or comments about the pipeline problems as horse excrement. Um, it is, I thought uh, you were going to go there, but I had to I, ask no, it. <laughs> I, always, I always like to play. It's a technical term. It's an excuse that I hear from boards. I hear from executives saying, well, we want to hire women. We want to hire people of color, but we can't find them. Well, here's the secret. They're not hiding from you. It's not like there's some secret village that you go to in order to find all the women and people of color. They exist but they're getting overlooked for opportunities. So keep in mind, here's a statistic. Women have been graduating with more than 50% of undergraduate degrees in the United States since 1979-1980. That was the school year. It changes by degree. I mean, humanities, as an example, tend to attract more women. Engineering still, it's about 25% today. It has been for the past 30 years. But it's not like they're hiding. It's not like they haven't the education. You have to actively seek them out. 
And the question is, if you aren't tracking the demographics of people who apply, how do you know if they're not applying? If you're not tracking the demographics of who gets in the pipe for a particular job, how do you know if it isn't diverse? What are you judging a candidate on? What's the criteria? Have your hiring managers and your recruiters prepared and gone through some bias training to know where bias creeps in? There are lots of things that you can do to make sure that you get diverse candidates into your organization, particularly at the top of the house, but it's work and you have to actively go out. So let me give you an example. You're a CEO and you're hiring a direct report, say a CFO, random, okay? And your recruiter brings you six resumes and they're all from men, largely with Caucasian sounding names. Your job as the CEO is to say, try again. And you have to be willing to say, in this day and age, considering the numbers around women in accounting programs, women with CPA designations, if you can't find three viable candidates who are female, you are doing a terrible job. It is not that hard. But until the CEO says, I'm not accepting this, then we will continue to accept those six candidates at face value as the best of the best. Well, they're not. Statistically speaking, they cannot be the best of the best. They just happen to be the best of the ones you found. Yeah. So it definitely ties back to that accountability. But is that kind of where the measurement piece comes into? So actually calculating the number of people submitting resumes, raising their hand for these job opportunities, or even internal development opportunities, right? And determining the actual output or follow through on whether we're actually filling these roles with people of color. I mean, where, where does the measurement come into play? I guess it's the follow-up question there. Well, it comes in everywhere. Listen, I'm a data okay. so I like measurement. Well, I am not, um, so please explain to me. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. How do you know if you've been successful? Unless you're measuring, you will not know if you've been successful. I'll give you an example. Let's say Mars decides to make a new chocolate bar, and I may have a bit of a chocolate issue. They will do a ton of research. They will do a ton of development. And then when they put the product in the market, they're going to do a ton of measurement to know if the product is successful. Why not around diversity and inclusion? We need to know if we are actually making progress. Just measuring the number of candidates that apply for a job and what is their demographic makeup, then measuring who gets screened in and then who gets interviewed and who eventually gets the job. Statistically speaking, the numbers should be somewhat consistent throughout the process. So if you're hiring, if you post a job, and 50% of the applicants are women and 50% are, are men. And I'm just going to use binary sex for a second. So 50-50 men and women. Then statistically speaking, 50-50 should be who gets screened in. It should be 50-50 who gets an interview. And then when you get to the hiring, statistically speaking, it could go either way. But what we see is 
50-50 applying for jobs because women make up 50% of the workforce. And then that number drops when they're screened in. It drops again when the interviews are selected. It's not to say that men are better at the jobs. Far from it. It's to say that there's bias in the situation. How many times have I been in a conversation about hiring or promoting a man and we're talking about his skills and ability? And then a woman, we're talking about her kids or her potential for children. That's bias. It's discriminatory, but more importantly, it's bias. The hiring process is a total crapshoot. There really is no magical way to get the best hire. It's just not possible. You hire a person and you are taking a risk. But if you look at the numbers, again, less than 30% of your potential workforce are straight, white, able-bodied men. And if you go into a city like New York, Atlanta, Los Angeles, that number is less than 10%. So if you look at your workforce and more than 10% of straight, white, able-bodied men, something is going on. And the measurement piece helps you to figure out what's going on. It's not the solution. I often say it doesn't tell you why something's on fire. It just tells you where to point the hose. Right. That's a great way to explain it, Michael. Thank you for breaking that down for me. And I feel like I've had so many aha moments with you. So I can't just in our short time together, right? So I can't even imagine some of the conversations that you've had with executive leaders and members of committees. So I'd love to hear what are some of the biggest aha moments just based on some of these conversations or surprises that these executives have experienced as they kind of go through this process, this unlearning, this developing the strategy, the measurement? I mean, what kind of feedback do you get around their overall experiences? And I guess in some cases, awakenings, right? I mean, what kind of rises to the top for you? Well, the conversation around privilege usually is an aha moment where once people get it and they realize that they have this thing called privilege, you can't unlearn that. And it becomes very eye-opening because you start to see the world through a different lens. You start to notice things that you didn't notice before. I think the other aha moment that I always enjoy is when you see an executive realize that diversity and inclusion can be a solution to their problems. And I think about one client in particular I was working with, CEO, I went in and I just said to him, what problems are you facing as an organization? And he said, around diversity, I said, no, 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 just as an organization, what are the problems? He said, talent, we can't get enough talent. I said, okay, so do you care where they come from? He said, no, if they can do the job, I don't care, fine. So I went out and he was particularly looking for accountants. And we went out and found him three individuals who all were CPAs, who all had the specific industry experience that he was looking for. And they weren't in the city where his office was, but they were willing to relocate. They also happened to be newcomers from China. And they were thrilled to have an opportunity to work in their chosen profession, which they had trained in. And they were struggling to find jobs in their chosen profession. So moved them to this city. They were exceptional performers. And the light bulb went on. And he realized that diversity could be the solution to his problems. All of a sudden, he had started a, a local diversity council. They put in prayer rooms in the office. 
they were doing all sorts of celebrations. He was volunteering for different organizations in his community around newcomers. And it was that aha moment for him, that light bulb moment that I love to see when an executive goes, oh, this isn't a hindrance. This isn't this thing I have to do. This is the answer to my problems. And that's how I look at diversity and inclusion. It isn't an outcome. It's a means to an outcome. It's the way to get to the solution is through diversity and inclusion. Yeah, I love that. So before I let you go, Michael, and we get into calls to action and takeaways, we've brought up a few times throughout our conversation the fact that not just employees, but consumers, stakeholders, the general public is not just paying more attention to, but is becoming increasingly critical of DNI initiatives and any sort of statements. And by critical, I mean really digging deep into the intent, the impact, and the action behind these activities. So do you have any closing thoughts or recommendations for business leaders, anyone who's charged with bringing their DNI initiatives to life? How can they ensure that and I guess this is kind of where we get into marketing, PR, and comms world a little bit. How can they ensure that there's full transparency and that there's clarity around this is not just something that we're doing to check the box. This is tangible change. This is action. And we are really invested in this. Are there any takeaways? I'm sure it's very complex as we get deep into it, but at a high level, is there anything you can share? Yeah, there's a couple things. I think. One is stop thinking about this as an Instagram moment. This is hard work. It's change. And no one likes change. It's hard on our brains. And the reality is it may take you a while to see the results of that change. We tend to live in this kind of Instagram moment-to-moment world. And diversity and inclusion is not going to bear fruit in a couple hours or days or weeks. It could take months and years before you really start to see the results. You have to keep on the path. You can't just say, oh, after six months, well, we're not seeing the results, so we're not going to bother with this anymore. There's a ton of work involved here, but the outcome is very much worth it. I think definitely planning, really important, not skipping a step, investing the money, people, time into this. And then also, I would say taking ownership of it. This is not the DNI managers or the chief diversity officer's job. It's everyone's job. Everyone has a, an opportunity to play a role in creating an inclusive workplace. And we all have to take that role. Because if we don't, we can undo the good work of other people. We have a lot of power as individuals. And I think... Everyone needs to understand their role and uh, take it seriously. Absolutely. I think your point around the Instagram moment is an important one because it's tricky, right? It's almost like a trap. It's like, do we wait on this and develop a sound strategy and action plan? Or do we put something out there to start just to show that we're taking action? Because I feel like on either side, 
people are going to be critical, right? They're going to be critical if you don't move fast enough and put your voice out there. And they're going to be critical if you're just putting a statement out there and there's no tangible next steps or tangible action, right? So I I think it's definitely a tricky balance to navigate. Absolutely. Understand you're going to get criticized no matter what. So prepare for some criticism. If you, I mean, you can certainly just jump off and do things. But again, are you a solution looking for a problem? Do you know what the problems are? I think you need to communicate a lot, uh, both internally and externally. Transparency is something I'm a big proponent of. And honest transparency, don't claim that everything is perfect because that is insulting to the people in your organization who know it's not. But you really do have to have a plan. Even if that plan is short term, there has to be a plan. Address the problems that you know are there, not the problems that you think are there. Great point. Excellent, Michael. Well, we're going in on 50 minutes now together. It's been a fantastic conversation. And your book is also filled with invaluable guidance. Birds of All Feathers will include a link to to access and, and purchase the book for folks in the show notes. But are there any other sources that listeners can go to to get informed, get advice? I mean, any recommendations as far as next steps go? Certainly. I mean, go beyond reading my book, which of course everyone should do as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Going going to our website at ccdi.ca. We've got a lot of resources free and available on the website that are absolutely applicable to the US market. And I think the other thing I would suggest is just be open to learning. I'll give you an example. So one of my favorite shows on Netflix is Dear White People. And it's a show that focuses on African-American students on a university or college campus and their lived experience. Very funny, but it's a very funny look at racism. And I think it's also a very realistic portrayal of what young African-American people go through. And that's learning. Watching that show is learning. Be open to it. Expand your circles, expand your horizons, read books like White Fragility or How to Be an Anti-Racist. Just having that, those learning moments in your life is so powerful. Like One Day at a Time is being rebooted and it's going to be available on, uh, I forget which station it's on, but they've done a Latinx version of One Day at a Time, which is fantastic. That's learning. And... That's the type of learning that you can do that goes a long way to change your perspectives about how things actually are in the world and get you outside of your little bubble. Even if it's uncomfortable, right? I mean, I think in many cases in in those learning and unlearning processes, you kind of get a little like, ugh, like you get an ick sometimes. I know I had some moments reading some of these books and I'm like, oh no, but I think that's important. So definitely a great call to action and Dear White People Agree is is a fantastic show. So definitely would give that my uh, seal of approval. But Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. I feel like we can go on and on for hours, but I'll let you get back to your day and um, really again appreciate the thought and the insight that came into our conversation today my pleasure thanks so much for having me 
And thanks everyone out there so much, as always, for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. If you have any follow-up questions for Michael or want to get connected to him, please feel free to reach out to us on social media at our touch points or through my personal account. We would love to continue these conversations because I really do think they're crucial to progress and productive collaboration and communication as an industry. So definitely reach out to us there. And if you have any ideas or any other feedback, back on this or other episodes, drop us a line on social as well. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. We are here through your ears every week having these candid and at times tough conversations so you can get alerted when these new episodes are available. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.